Thank you. Thank you, Harry. As he said, he's a good friend, and I'm thrilled he's back here. I know he has added already incredible value uh, to the spiritual atmosphere of this campus. We'll continue to do so every opportunity you have to get close to him. I hope you'll do that as he is a very wise and godly man and friend. It's always good to be back, and again, as was mentioned already, just thrilled that Master sets aside time for prayer as such a vital priority, not just in word, but in deed. And tomorrow being a day entirely devoted to that is such a gift to all of our souls and the privilege. This is now my sixth year to come back, so uh, I don't know how many years we'll keep doing this, but I, I'm, I'm in, and I love this and uh, thrilled that we can be together. My son Jordan is with me. He'll be helping lead worship uh, as part of the day tomorrow, and I think some of your worship leaders as well. Uh, our our ministry is called Strategic Renewal. I think there's some information. We'd love to stay in touch with some of you. We uh, do a devotion every Monday that is very focused on renewal, prayer, revitalization, and uh, grateful for what the Lord is allowing us to do in that regard. And today our message is titled, Six Practical Insights to Transform Your Prayer Life and Experience Intimacy with Christ. Title's almost as long as a sermon, but it kind of captures the essence of where we want to go today, uh, six practical insights. We're going to be looking at a particular text, but I also am going to be speaking very practically from my own journey in ways that I hope will help you. I often say, I say it again today, I'm not a natural prayer guy. Uh, again, some, some of you may have thought to bring this dude in and he's going to be, you know, wearing a robe, swinging incense, glowing in the dark, dripping Shekinah juice, you know, and uh, I'm just a normal guy, all right? Uh, but the Lord has taught me the hard lessons of prayer along the way. And one of my favorite statements is that prayerlessness is our declaration of independence from God. And I get that. I'm fiercely independent by nature. That is my personality. I often say my friends remind me I could be stranded on a desert island for a week and never realize I'm the only one there. I'd be having such a great time collecting coconuts, building huts, and suddenly realize, hey, nobody's around, right? That's how independent I can be. Prayer is depending on God, and the Spirit must birth within us by His Word a relentless commitment to live a reliant life of intimacy. And so I invite you to journey with me, not only today as we teach, but also in the days to come. As I think about your mutual commitment to the Word here at Masters, and while my alma mater is another school, there's not a place I love more than Masters, and I'm grateful for it, but also your commitment to prayer. It reminds me of a story from a number of years ago. A man named Dale was teaching a Bible class at a church where I was preaching, and I sat in on his exposition of Titus. I was astounded at his insight. Uh, we had the privilege of having lunch uh, later that day, and he told me that there were a number of years where he was spiritually adrift. He had just really not stayed in touch with the Lord, was uh, really backslidden. And uh, I asked him, how did that happen? We were standing by a stream, and I'll never forget this illustration. He said, you know, the Christian life is like swimming upstream in a downstream world. And he said there are two strokes, prayer and the Word. Prayer and the Word. He said, very simple, I quit stroking. You know, I've learned over the years, you can be strong in the Word and you'll still be making progress. You just might be going in circles, right? And you can be strong in prayer, be making progress, but it's not the most efficient way to grow. And I love that mutual commitment to prayer and the Word. It was Leonard Ravenhill, the great revival writer, who said this, a man may study because his brain is hungry for knowledge, even Bible knowledge, but he prays because his soul is hungry for God. And tomorrow, I trust that God would birth in us and continue in our lives a hunger for him. It was the great 19th century pastor, Charles Bridges, who said it this way. He said, prayer is one half of our ministry, and it gives to the other half all of its power and success. 
It is the appointed medium of receiving spiritual communication for the instruction of our people. Thus, as Harry's already mentioned, my particular passion and our passion for Acts 6-4, prayer and the ministry of the word. Allow me to read one more uh, citation from Dr. Donald McDougall, former seminary professor here at Masters. He said it this way to pastors, but it relates to all of us. He said, if the church wants to succeed in its God-given mission, its leadership must realize that one of its greatest needs is more prayer meetings, not more planning meetings. If the monthly leadership meetings would give more time to praying than to planning, leaders would soon find a change in attitude, in perspective on ministry, and in results. He says the bottom line objective is for the leadership to face the fact, listen to this, that the church of which they are a part is not their church. It is God's church. And the people they lead are not their flock, but very distinctly God's flock. He says the purpose of their meetings is not to come to a consensus about running the church, but to wait upon God to find out how he wishes his church to run. And I would remind us today, these are not our lives. These are God's lives. He has not called us to figure it out, but to follow him. And the great joy of prayer is the privilege of consulting with the owner and creator of all things, waiting upon him in order to discover what it is he wants for our lives. And what a privilege that is as we think of prayer. For those of you going into pastoral ministry, I just want to encourage you to check out the 6-4 Fellowship website. It's free, but it's filled with resources from pastors and leaders who are unpacking the priorities of prayer and the ministry of the Word. Great themes of encouragement, and I hope that you with me will return with everything in us day after day to the priorities of prayer and the ministry of the Word. Now, Harry mentioned I was part of the Grace Church staff. I was Dr. MacArthur's uh, personal assistant and associate pastor. We had the joy of traveling together as I uh, managed his schedule, etc. And we have a lot of things not in common, several things in common. Our hairline is similar, which I like that. I always like when people join the Fellowship of the Foreheads. It's a great group. Uh, but we also have a favorite verse. And he has written prolifically about his favorite verse. Today, we're going to be turning to that verse. It's found in 2 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 18. And again, our title today is Six Practical Insights to Transform Your Prayer Life and Experience Intimacy with Christ. 2 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 18. Now, let me put this in context personally. Uh, when I left here, uh, back when I was 30 years of age, I went to Northern California inherited a church where I followed a predecessor who had covered up a moral failure that dated back eight years. Uh, the church imploded when it came to light. Uh, they were involved in a $21 million, $25 million lawsuit. Uh, the church was hurting. It was in a tailspin, and I arrived again at the ripe age of 30. And uh, he had been there 28 years, and I was there as long as he was. I was there four years, but in dog years, it equaled 28. And some of you uh, will have that experience down the road. Uh, those are the days in which, humanly, I wanted to walk away from the ministry. I was ready to get a real job, support some other guy crazy enough to do this, but the Lord wouldn't let me. And one of the things that kept me anchored was I was preaching through the book of 2 Corinthians, which is Paul's most transparent book. He was writing to defend himself uh, from false teachers that had infiltrated the church, and the best way they could find to get into the hearts of the people was to make Paul look bad. So he had to be very honest about his ministry, his calling, the essence of who he was. And so with very great transparency, he unpacks the nature of gospel ministry. And at the core of the core of this book is a section in 2 Corinthians 3 and 4 into 5. And I think the apple seed of that core is the verse we're looking at today. 
you're going into ministry, if you're going to serve the Lord, this verse has to be emblazoned upon your soul. We won't get to it, but in the very next verse, Paul says, seeing therefore we have this ministry as we have received mercy, we don't lose heart. So when we understand the Christian life and Christian ministry in terms of this verse, it gives us great endurance and joy in ministry. Now textually, the context is that Paul is contrasting the old covenant with the new covenant. Uh, the covenant that was given through Moses compared to the covenant that is given through Christ. The work of the law versus the work of the Spirit. Uh, the condemnation of sin that came through the law versus the forgiveness and new life and freedom that comes through Christ. And an old covenant focused on one man who delivered it versus all of us who now experience it through our Savior. Allow me to read it as you follow along. Here's what Paul writes. And we all with unveiled face... Beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another, for this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. Now people often ask, is this a Bible study verse or is this a prayer verse? My answer is yes. It's a verse about intimacy with Christ. Uh, the context is Moses coming from the mount, having met with God, having received the truth, prayer, and the word, radiating God's glory only in a temporary sense versus those of us who have encountered Christ radiating his glory in a permanent sense. So I want to share these practical lessons as we unpack the text and as I talk to you very personally and conversationally as well. Number one, let God start the conversation. Now, this is not implicit in the text, but I think it is implicit in transformational prayer because it is not just the idea of sitting there thinking of something that comes to your mind. It is the idea of encountering God out of the pages of his word. The way I start every personal prayer time and the way we'll pray tomorrow, the way I lead every prayer meeting I've ever led is very simply by saying, let's open our Bibles. Let's open our Bibles. Some of you are wondering, what in the world are you going to pray about all day long? Well, we have lots of material to work from. And we have a God who's always willing to reveal himself to us so that we might know him. I often say that prayer is a two-way conversation, right? So the question is, who starts the conversation? Well, it depends on your view of prayer. If you believe that prayer is blowing into God's presence, filling him in on what he needs to do today in order to structure the universe according to your specifications for a happy and comfortable life, then you should start the conversation to fill him in, right? But if prayer is about encountering him, knowing him, aligning with his will, then let him start the conversation. My favorite definition of prayer is intimacy with God that leads to the fulfillment of his purposes. And the only way that intimacy can be realized and those purposes can be understood is in his word. It was John Piper who said, and he's always stealing my stuff in this case again, but it's John Piper who said it this way, where the, the mind is not brimming with scripture the heart is seldom brimming with prayer. George Mueller in his autobiography, he said, for years I tried to pray without starting in the book. And he said, and my mind wondered. I wonder how many of you, your mind has ever wondered when you're praying? Let's see your hands. Some of your mind's wondering now. You don't know what to ask. Just raise your hand anyway, all right? But uh, yeah, we know how that works, right? But then Mueller goes on to say, when I started in the scriptures, I was able to pray effectively for decades yet to come. One writer says it this way, prayer is answering speech because the first word everywhere and always is God's word to us, not our word to him. And so the best way to talk to God is from his own word. And, and let me add, 
I think the best way to apply the Bible is through prayer. The best way to apply God's word is by praying it. And that's why I believe if our goal is intimacy, we always let God start the conversation so that it may truly be transformational. Number two, I would encourage you practically pursue the balance of what I call right leg, left leg praying. Now that may sound confusing, but let me explain it. People often ask me, well, Daniel, which is more important, private prayer or corporate prayer? Some of you heard me say this before. My answer is yes. It's like asking, which leg do you need to walk on more, your right leg or your left leg? But let's be very honest. In Western society, we have amputated our corporate prayer leg, and we are now dysfunctional on our private prayer leg because it was never meant to be that way. I have the privilege of teaching at a seminary back east where they have a lot of students from South Korea. And very often, you'll hear a South Korean student come up to a Western student and say to them, why do you pray by yourself? Uh, from their framework, it doesn't even make sense that you would just be slugging this out only on your own when you have the privilege of joining in community in the reality of prayer. And I, I point you to the text. Paul begins by saying, and we all. Uh, the better translation would be all y'all, all right? All us all. Uh, the, the pronoun here is plural. He's not referring to a loosely knit society of individuals. He is referring to them in community, himself included. In fact, what sometimes we don't think about is that prior to the advent of the printing press, the only way to receive truth was in community, right? And so you heard the word that way. And of course, in the early church, they knew the language intimately. And so, for instance, when Paul said to them, pray without ceasing, different than us, we say, well, that means I should have a good prayer life, and you should. What they heard is all y'all don't stop praying together. Pray without ceasing. Uh, Jesus said, my house will be a house of prayer. And the early church was advanced as they prayed together. When the day of Pentecost had fully come, they weren't all in individual little prayer cubicles. They were all together. They understood what Jesus meant. And even the very model prayer he gave them was all plural pronouns. Gene Getz, a renowned professor from Dallas Seminary, asked the question, he said, you know, I appreciate all that's been written about personal prayer and personal intimacy with God, but, but what have we done with the primary New Testament corporate emphasis, which sounds very counterintuitive, doesn't it? He said, but the reason is that, that we are marked by rugged individualism in Western society, and we tend to think just in terms of I, me, and my, rather than we, our, and us. It goes on to say the fact of the matter is the ability to individually enjoy these dynamics is often rooted in a vital corporate experience of them. They go together. Uh, my son Jordan, pick on him, he was on the praise team at uh, Liberty University for a number of years and uh, has a passion for what we just did a few minutes ago, worship and song. And he asked the question, where did he get that passion? Well, it's an interesting story. He walked out into the field one day and stood under a tree and a worship apple fell on his head and suddenly started singing Chris Tomlin songs. It was a miracle. No, you didn't believe me, right? That's not how it happened. It happened out of the community experience of worship, seeing what happens when people adore our Lord, when music gets into our soul and we raise our praise to God. And the reality I would say to you is that as you learn to pray together, you will learn to pray more effectively on your own because that's just the way it works. Why do we need to pray together? Well, the Bible commands it. We've talked about that. And we need it. Why do you need to pray with others? Well, first of all, because we learn from each other. When the Spirit of God is praying in and through me, he's teaching me something at the same time, right? We learn from each other. We also learn about each other, by the way. 
I always say what a person is on their knees, that's what they are. I mean, we can sit and talk about sports, you know, Jordan and I are tracking the Seahawks win last night, you know, and you're tracking whoever else. I mean, that's a level of communication. But when you pray together, there's a window into your soul unlike anything else. We learn from each other, we learn about each other, and we learn about him together as we enter into biblical prayer. And so learn, it's not just private, but it's community prayer, right leg, left leg. Thirdly, Harry's R alluded to this. You've heard me say it many times, but I just have to reiterate it. Seek his face and then his hand. Seek his face and then his hand. Notice what the passage says. We all with an unveiled face are beholding the glory of the Lord. Uh, now he's saying, what's the veil thing all about? Well, again, uh, unbelieving Jews, the Bible says, have a veil. They, they cannot understand the gospel, a, a veil of, of misunderstanding of unbelief. Moses also had a veil because his glory was fading. Both those veils are gone. Our glory is permanent, it's real, it's internal, and the veil of unbelief has been removed. So now, with this great description of intimacy, unencumbered fellowship, Paul says we are beholding the doxa, the glory of the Lord the presence, the person of the Lord. Now, this is not a description of our traditional prayer times, right? Where we get around and we make long lists of everybody who's got an ailing body part and cousins who are going on trips and dogs who have rabies, you know, and then we throw up an alley-oop at the end and hope God will help us, right? That's not what this is about. This is about beholding him for who he is in the glory of his person. It is a pursuit of Christ himself. Now, no surprise Paul would teach this because when Jesus told us how to pray, it wasn't a suggestion, by the way, it was a command. He said, pray this way, and you know the model prayer, our Father, etc. Uh, this is where it starts. You know this, right? And fundamentally, and we'll unpack this in more detail in our prayer time, but fundamentally there are two halves to the prayer, as you probably know. The first half is all Godward, our Father, thy kingdom, thy will. Second half is all manward. Give us this day our needs. Lead us not into temptation. Forgive us. Godward, then manward. The order is essential. The way I like to summarize this, and to me it's the rhythm of prayer, is he is worthy and we are needy. He is worthy, we are needy. Would you say that with me? He is worthy, we are needy. Too often prayer just focuses on our neediness, but we can't even really understand our neediness. We don't even know how to pray about our neediness unless we begin with his worthiness. And so seek his face, seek him for who he is, and then his hand. And I often say it this way, if all you ever do is seek his hand in prayer, you may miss his face. But if you seek his face, he will be glad to open his hand. And this becomes the, the intrinsic motive of our lives. I Harry was taking me back on a, a stroll through memory lane as we were talking about going to school together, and I thought about times we prayed together early in the mornings when we were in college and seminary, and I thought about all the prayer times I've led as a pastor multiple times every week, not because I'm spiritual, but because I just wanted to learn and grow, and I think of those thousands of prayer times, and I'll be very honest with you, this may help you tomorrow morning, I didn't feel like going to most of them. <laughs> I did not feel like going, and I was leading them. I did not feel like going. So you say, well, what do you do, Henderson? You just gut it out, you know, pinch yourself and make yourself obey? No, I just remind myself again, he is worthy to be sought. The only enduring motive for prayer is that God is worthy to be sought. 
And that never changes, does it? Other motives may change. You may feel like it, may not feel like it, may be in a good mood, a bad mood, may have a long list of these, not too many. He's still worthy to be sought. I often tell my kids, I want this one on my tombstone. He is worthy to be sought. And they say, Dad, you got way too many things you want written on your tombstone. Man, we, gotta, we don't have that much money, right? Uh, but I have good news. They now make QR codes for your tombstone. Did you hear about that? It was in the news. So I'm just going to have a QR code with all my little phrases, and you can come visit me someday, all right? But one of them will be this. The only enduring motive for prayer is that he is worthy to be sought. And by the way, someday when you get to heaven, you won't be praying about ailing body parts. You won't be praying for missionaries. You won't be praying for a job, but you will be saying what? Worthy is the lamb that was slain. And this is the time to get in practice. Jesus said, begin with the worthiness of our Father, the glory of his name. Number four, I want to encourage you to embrace prayer as transformational, not just therapeutic. All right? Embrace prayer as transformational, not just therapeutic. Again, we tend to think of prayer merely as therapeutic. In other words, and the Bible tells us, don't worry, instead do what? Pray. Don't be anxious, pray. You have a need, tell your father. You need guidance, ask him. You need wisdom, ask him. Uh, there, there is great holy spiritual therapy in prayer. Uh, but I would suggest to you that the main purpose of prayer is transformational. It is to change us. Notice what it says. We are being transformed. It's literally the idea of a spiritual metamorphosis. We are being transformed into the same image. The image of who? Jesus Christ. You see, prayer is ultimately designed to make us more like Jesus. Yes, God's going to take care of our needs. He's a good father. He takes care of the lilies and the birds of the air. We can trust him. But primarily, we need to be changed. Let me give you two illustrations, if I could, from the scripture, uh, kind of as a sidebar. Some of you remember in Matthew chapter 5, uh, Jesus is talking about how we relate to our enemies, all right? And he says that you should uh, not hate them, but love them. And notice what he says in Matthew 5, 44. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. <laughs> now, pause right there. What might that prayer look like? You ever thought about that prayer? I could come up with some really juicy prayers at that point, right? I mean, I'd pull some of those imprecatory phrases out, you know, and Lord, poke their eyes out, dash their babies against the rocks, you know, make them have a wreck, take them home, something, you know, these people are driving me crazy, making my life miserable. Pray for your enemies. What does that prayer look like? What's the point of that prayer? I'm glad you asked. <laughs> Notice the very next phrase. So that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. Newsflash, the persecutors may not change, but you will. You see, the point of that prayer is to change us. In fact, it goes on later in that text saying that you are to be perfect even as your heavenly Father is perfect. The point of praying for those persecutors is the transformation of our own hearts in the process. You see Stephen enabled by the Spirit of God saying, Lord, lay this not at their feet, right? You see Jesus suspended between heaven and earth saying, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. And the question is, when there are people who are getting in your grill, as they say in New York, people who are making your life miserable, yes, you pray for them. They may not change, but I promise you, if you understand prayer biblically, you will. Here's another one. 
1 Timothy chapter 2. Now, this one's going to be very familiar to all of us because we're in the midst of the political debate scene. Uh, last Wednesday night, we actually had tickets to the great conservative bastion of Boulder, Colorado, uh, to go uh, see the Republican debate. Some of you are so wrapped up in your studies, you didn't even know that happened, maybe. But uh, we had fun cheering and booing and all the stuff that goes with it, right? And so we're all wrapped up in politics. By the way, interesting note, just as a sidebar, the government under which Paul and Jesus lived makes our government look like kindergarten teachers, really. I mean, honestly, it was pagan, evil. They demanded worship. They were immoral. Obviously, they eventually just tried to do everything they could to annihilate the faith. And what's fascinating to me is that neither Jesus nor Paul even said anything about it. It wasn't even a blip on their radar screen, except pay your taxes and what? Pray for them. That was it. Because they knew the power of the gospel to transform a pagan world, right? But here comes this text now. Pray for those who are in authority. 1 Timothy chapter 2. Uh, pray for kings and all who are in high positions. All right, pause there. All right. Oh, so what does that prayer look like now? I'm going to pray for political leaders. Well, I know some of you, you're going to pray that they'll, you know, be in the right party or have the right positions or God will remove them from office or who knows what, right? But notice what happens here. As we pray for them, listen, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. Question, who changes when we pray for our leaders? We do. You see, as we're praying, God works in us that we will be peaceful and quiet in our living, that we'll be godly and dignified. Uh, believe me, friends, the government is not the source of any of those things, only the gospel. And he goes on to say, by the way, this is good and pleasing to God who desires all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. That will not happen through any government. It happens through the church that is living out the gospel as they are being transformed in their praying. And so again, the point is that we change. Yes, it is therapeutic, but largely it's transformational. And prayer is designed to make us more like Jesus. Fifth principle, very practical for my own life. Very simply, go for the glory. All right, go for the glory. Notice what Paul says next, that we are transformed one from one degree of glory to another. Perhaps my favorite movie of all time is a deeply rich and spiritual film uh, called Nacho Libre. Some of you know how significant that film is, right? <laughs> Thank you. I knew I'd have some fans here. Uh, I've watched it many times. It's funnier every time I watch it. So uh, one of my favorite scenes, though, is when Nacho, with his aspirations of becoming a luchadore, uh, needs a tag team partner. And so some of you will know this scene. Uh, in, in a back alley where he has met Stephen, who's been stealing the Lord's chips up to this point, right? Uh, he, he, he wrestles him to the ground. And he says to him, Stephen, aren't you tired of getting dirty in your face? Don't you want a taste of the glory? See what it tastes like, right? You remember that scene? They say, what in the world does that have to do with prayer? Well, let me tell you this. Sometimes I get really tired of the devil kicking dirt in my face when it comes to prayer. The dirt of confusion, misguided focus, discouragement. I want a taste of the glory. And Paul says we can know what it tastes like. 
from one degree of the glory of Christ through our lives to another degree of Christ being glorified through our lives, as well as another degree of receiving and experiencing the presence and power of Christ in our lives, from glory to glory, we are being changed. Go for the glory. I define this word glory, which is not a common one. Here I remember we had a chapel leader at the school we went to who would stand up every day and say, well, glory. And he was an old guy, kind of like we are now. But, and I knew what he meant, but we thought that was the goofiest deal. We'd go around the door and go, well, glory. You know how it is. Uh, some of you will do that about me today when you get back to dorm. But uh, we didn't know what glory was. You don't read that in the newspaper. I've come to define this idea of glory as the magnification of the person of Christ by his people and the manifestation of the power of Christ within his people. There's a two-sided coin to glory, right? In the Old Testament, there was God's glory, and then there was his manifest presence, which he called his glory. From a New Testament standpoint, it is the magnification of the person of Christ by his people. We tasted of glory as we sang of him a few minutes ago. We taste of his glory as we come to know his word. We taste of glory as we pray. But it's also the manifestation of the power of Christ within his people. It is him unleashing his power in and through us as we are intimate with him. I remember reading in a devotional several years ago, the only thing that motivates God is his own glory. And it was so convicting to me, I realized, Lord, there's many other things that motivate my prayer life, but may it be that the only thing that motivates my prayers is your glory. From glory to glory, go for the glory. Finally, I would encourage you to utilize your personal prayer tutor. All right? You say, where's his office here on campus? I I didn't know we hired that guy. Well, it's not a human, as you know. Notice what he says here. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. Some of you remember the movie, The Blind Side. Michael Orr, who obviously became a professional football player, struggled with his grades, which was limiting his athletic potential. And so the Tui family essentially adopted him, made him part of their their clan of sorts. And they wanted to help him realize his, his, his ultimate goal of playing football. But his hindrance was his academics. So what did they do? They hired a personal tutor, didn't they, Miss Sue? And she worked with him relentlessly, aggressively, until he got his grades up and then, as you know, went on to play professional football. I'm so humbled daily, as I think, of the price that was paid that I might have a personal prayer tutor and the reality of the presence of the Holy Spirit in my life. And you're not left to your own to learn how to pray. It's not something you have to just figure out. There's, there's not a, uh, some intricate formula. There is an indwelling prayer tutor in your life known as the very Spirit of God. And by the way, as we talk about the Holy Spirit, Jordan knows this is one of my beefs these days, but I travel a lot. I'm in a lot of different environments, pastors, group, churches, and, and I'm very concerned about what we're doing to the Holy Spirit in our songs, most of which are not written by theologians, obviously. They're written by artists who are trying to sell records. But these, these strange phrases that I think are so funny, uh, uh, calling the church the house of the Lord, the building the house of the Lord, which it's not. By the way, this is a gymnasium until we walk in. Now it's the house of the Lord, right? has nothing to do with the building. And then welcoming the Holy Spirit to the service, I'm thinking, what? I think he welcomed us last time I checked. 
I don't think he needs us to summons him in from the heavenly somewhere. Uh, he's already here. He's in us. And when we come together, his presence is paramount. And then these phrases about asking the Holy Spirit to fill the atmosphere, you know, like he's a blue smoke or some gold dust or something, right? This is a very Old Testament, and, and, you know, he doesn't need to defend him, but he did write the Bible, and I think we need to sing about him based on what he has said about himself, right? He is not some essence that falls down from the sky that we need to work up through a level of emotion. Uh, and even this idea of the Spirit falling on us, and there's an old hymn, it says, Spirit of living God, fall afresh on me. I've quit singing it that way, and I know it's, maybe it's my beef, but the better way to say it is, Spirit of living God, work afresh in me. He's already fallen. He lives in our hearts. He indwells us. And, and again, this misrepresentation can create a superficial understanding of the power of the Spirit and the work of worship and the potential of revival. We don't need to summons him. We simply need to surrender to him. And let him do the work he has promised to do by his very holy presence in our life. And Paul is referring to that here. I would invite you finally to turn to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8 verses 26 through 30. Because you're going to see an incredible parallel between what Paul is referring to here in 2 Corinthians 3. And what he writes about in Romans chapter 8 verses 26 through 30. 26 through 30. Notice what he says. Romans chapter 8, verse 26 through 30. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. How many of you are weak in your praying? <laughs> I am. You never graduate from the school of prayer, right? I mean, the devil hates it. Our flesh opposes it. it, it everything in the noise and busyness and achievement-oriented culture we live in fights against praying. But notice what Paul says. For we do not know what to pray as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. He's transcending just our thoughts and, and our own intentions. He's stirring something deep within us. And in verse 27, and he who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And he knows that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are aligned according to his purpose. So, so you see the Spirit's working in us as our personal prayer tutor, as it were. And he is, he is revealing and unfolding all of his work and all of his offices so that we pray aligned with the word of God and the will of God and assured of the work of God in our lives, right? Verse 28, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be Boy, this sounds very 2 Corinthians 3.18-esque, doesn't it? To be conformed to the image of his son in order that what? He may be the firstborn among many brothers, Christ's preeminence, and those whom he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he justified. And those he called, uh, those he justified, he also, here it is again, glorified. Making us now and ultimately in eternity just like his son. In recent years, and uh, I repeat this often, it means so much to me, I, I've wondered why is it the early church prayed like they did? Everything was embedded with prayer. And why is it that we struggle like we do? I've concluded that the real issue is the early church actually believed, and catch this, that the Holy Spirit is the how-to. We think the Holy Spirit helps us with our how-to. In other words, 
The Holy Spirit was their how-to. He was their power. He was their unity. He was their understanding. He was their witness. He, he was everything they had, and he was sufficient, right? But for us, we view the Holy Spirit, I have a smartphone down in the front row, uh, like an app. And, and when we get in trouble, we need guidance. We'll, we'll call up the Holy Spirit say, hey, Lord, help me out. The reality is the Holy Spirit is the operating system. He is the author of the scripture. He gives us insight into the word of God. He, he works in us as we see here to make us like Jesus Christ. And so, oh, how we need the Holy Spirit. You've heard the urban legend before of Charles Spurgeon, the great prince of preachers, as he walked up those steps to his pulpit would mutter under his breath, I believe in the Holy Spirit. I believe in the Holy Spirit. And as we pray, that must be our cry. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the spirit of prayer, the spirit who's gonna work in me to align everything in me to the will of God in order to conform me to the Son of God, in order to assure me of the purposes of God. And so, friends, I would encourage you day by day to take full advantage of your prayer tutor. So with open Bibles, in community, as well as alone, seeking his face and not just his hands, anticipating, experiencing transformation and doing it all for the glory of Christ by the aid of the Holy Spirit. Uh, may it be our cry again today, Lord, teach us, teach us to pray. Close with a story that may be familiar to a number of you and I wrote about it in my book, Transforming Prayer. It's a story of a father who uh, came home one day from work, very tired, it had been a grueling day. And his young son characteristically wanted to go out and play. And the father on this particular night was so exhausted, he wanted to buy himself some time after dinner. He was kicked back in his easy chair reading the newspaper. And his son kept pestering him, and he had a stroke of genius. In the middle of the newspaper was a full page ad with a picture of the globe suspended in space, the earth. And so he took that out, he tore it into little pieces, and he gave it to his son. He said, son, go tape this back together, and when you get that done, we'll go out and play. The dad thought, man, I bought myself at least 30 minutes. He doesn't know a flip about geography, so this is a great move, you know. So the son runs off enthusiastically, paper in hand, scotch tape. Comes back five minutes later. The dad said, how did you do that? And the son said, oh, dad, it's actually very easy. He said, I don't think you knew this, but there was a big picture of a man's face on the back of that page. And so I just taped the man's face together and flipped it over. <laughs> and he made a statement that I think is so relevant to our walk with Christ. He said, Dad, when I got the man right, I got the world right. Students, I believe that when we get the man right, we get the world right. And the change starts here. Because we all, with unveiled face are beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord and are being transformed into that same image from glory to glory, even by the Spirit of the Lord. Seeing therefore, Paul says, by the mercy of God that we have this ministry, we never lose heart. Let's pray. So Father, we thank you for the wonderful work of your Son, who as he gave his life for us on the cross and through that work caused us to see that amazing picture of the veil that separated holy God from unholy men being torn from top to bottom so that we may have today the privilege of knowing you. And Lord, I want to thank you for this assembly of 
young people who are being transformed in order to be agents of that transformation through the power of the gospel. Lord, we, we want to stroke well prayer and the word. Prayer and the word. So give us relentless passion, wise balance, and may it truly be that till our dying breath, we will continue to say, you are worthy and we are needy. So we will pray. For the glory of Christ, the advancement of his kingdom, we ask. Amen. Tomorrow, the, mu tomorrow, the music recital hall, uh, 9 o'clock to 11.30, will be gathering to corporately pursue the Lord together. And then at 1 o'clock to 3.30. Now, I just want to give uh, just a pastoral footnote to you. Um, I want to encourage you, not just because you heard a sermon today, but I want to encourage you to prioritize tomorrow. Uh, I read something that uh, E.M. Bounds said, no learning can make up for the failure to pray. No earnestness, no diligence, no study, no gifts will supply its lack. Praying is something you learn by praying. You can read a bunch of books on prayer. The way you learn to pray is to pray. Tomorrow is not only an opportunity to bless God with your pursuit of him. Tomorrow is an opportunity to grow up and develop your ability to pursue the Lord collectively and corporately and personally in prayer. So I want to encourage you to prioritize it. And, number, and I know, I know what, I know what it's like. Whether you're a pastor or whether you're a student, prioritizing is everything. You have schoolwork, you have sports to prepare for. The Master's College is set apart tomorrow for faculty, staff, and for you so that we can come together to worship the Lord in prayer and to grow to become more like him. Prioritize it. The second thing, prioritize all of it. Morning and afternoon. Here's what I learned in my 18 years of pastor's prayer summits. I was always too busy to go. It was never an easy schedule deal. It was three days. It was always hard to transition from the busy to the prayer. But this is what I want you to know. This is me to you, what I wish I knew where you are now, that I now understand you have to decompress in prayer. You need the time, all of it. It'll get better and better and better. Show up, let God do what he wants to do, and you'll be surprised how you decompress and how your heart responds. Make sure tomorrow you take advantage of the opportunity that we share together. I love what Daniel does by way of his facilitation. You will not be bored, you will not fall asleep, You'll be blessed, and I want to encourage you to that end. So, Father, help us. Help us to do what you would have us to do, and I pray for this school family that together tomorrow we can experience your glory in a fresh way. Lord Jesus found it often that he would set apart extended time to pray. Help us to do that together, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Have a great day.